30 minutes or so, or so, and uh, then we'll get into Acts chapter 20 tonight. So good to see you folks, nice uh, summer evening, a lot of folks traveling the course, so uh, glad to see you folks out on this uh, balmy night. Well, let's get started. We'll pray. Ask God to bless us and uh, get into it. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for these dear folks that came out on a beautiful summer sunny night and pray that you'd bless them, Lord, for being here, that uh, you teach us from current events and Bible prophecy as well as uh, as we go into the wonderful book of Acts uh, chapter 20 and glean some wonderful things from that. Father, would you bless those traveling, so many folks away right now, and uh, Lord, would you bless them, look after them, and uh, Lord, for the youth group tonight, the rooted teens for Summer Quest, uh, bless the leaders, please, all the young folks that'll be here, would you please use the leadership and uh, the fellowship, Lord, to encourage and disciple the young folks, as well as to give the gospel to any that may be here that don't know Christ. So, Lord, we commit this entire night to you, ask that you bless our time, and we commit it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, uh, everybody get a handout for Acts 20. Uh, that'll be coming up in about a half an hour or so. And uh, as uh, we've been really stressing what's up there, we've go to multiple different sources regarding things that we're looking at uh, regarding current events and Bible prophecy. If anyone's new on the internet tonight, what we do is we look at various things in the news that are uh, open source, meaning that it's available uh, from the media and other news outlets. We analyze uh, certain stories as they have a nexus to prophecy, so we'll be looking at some of those tonight, three in particular. And uh, the main thing that we've been paying attention to, of course, is as we look at the prophetic calendar, we look at Revelation 13, which spells out three major things that will be coming in the future, not while we're here, the church age, but shortly after what's known as the rapture of the church takes place, where God's people are taken up to heaven, there'll be a short interlude period, and then... Uh, the seven-year tribulation will start, Daniel 9.27, and also in Daniel 9.27, it makes it clear that after the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period, it'll be called the Great Tribulation. So when you're reading uh, in various passages and you see the, the two words together, Great Tribulation, that's speaking of those last three and a half years of that period. During that last three and a half years are the events that we're talking about, a one-world economy, a one-world religion, and a one-world government that absolutely, positively, unequivocally, is that enough, Ed, or whatever those are, uh, uh, will form according to Scripture, and God's Word always comes to fulfillment exactly as stated. So that's what we're looking at, so we're going to start out tonight. And actually, I have all these articles sitting on my desk, but I have another way to get them. I'm going to pop them up here. And let's see. It'll take me 30 seconds here to find my articles. And it always helps when you leave stuff where you don't want it. But that's why I bring my computer just in case I do what I just did. All right, here we go. 
All right, so first one we're going to look at is politicians, basically, and, and I'm trying to be kind, and I don't like getting partisan. I'll read you the actual title because I did change it slightly uh, to protect the guilty or the innocent, as the case may be. So the actual title is Gone Off a Cliff, Dems Grapple with Anti-Semitism Ahead of Israel's President's Visit. So uh, what's taking place, and this has been all over the news, and I'll show you from the prophetic picture why this is important, but uh, there's a major issue that's taken place, which is, uh, if you will, those that hold to a non-supportive government position in America uh, are really struggle with when President Biden deals with anyone from Israel. So under President Trump, it was a little bit different. You had uh, Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, who was an Orthodox Jewish individual. Ivanka Trump, who many of you at least know about, uh, was married to uh, uh, Jared Kushner, and she converted to Orthodox Judaism. So Daddy, of course, being president, uh, certainly was influenced by uh, Jared and Ivanka, and I think his, his own personal beliefs were positive towards Israel before that even took place. Now we have a total shift in uh, uh, the government and who's leading it, and uh, President Biden is not quite as, if you will, open to certain things about the Jewish folks in Israel. So there's a, a little more of a, if you will, a push going on. Then uh, when you look at, and again, this isn't about I'm not, and I, I always caveat because I'm not trying to offend anyone. I, I mean, Republican, Democrat, Independent. Do I have a party I particularly care for? I do, but that's not my point here, nor am I trying to be political. The thing is, when we're looking at how God deals with Israel, God happens to be pro-Jew. God happens to be pro-Israel. And therefore, when we're looking at government entities, and we're seeing there's a rift between Israel and America that can, from a biblical perspective, cause a problem. Again, we constantly go back to what's known as the Abrahamic Covenant, Genesis chapter 12, first three verses, and God spells it out, and I don't believe his, uh, God's changing his covenant here with Israel, and you all know it, I will bless those who and who, who are you, <laughs> right? I will bless those who bless what country? Israel. I mean, it's unequivocal. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. So one of the things, and whether it's true or not, I, I mean, God's the only one that knows, but you'll hear many pastors, preachers, uh, Christians that will say something to this effect. One of the reasons why God hasn't uh, tore up America and thrown it in the trash, even though it's 96% uh, against him, uh, and that's a, a fact based on surveys from Pew and Barna, which we've gone through, why does God not destroy America? Well, one of the things that people have contended, true or not, is that based on our relationship with Israel and being an ally of Israel, that God has shown mercy on our country and uh, not judge for the many horrible things that are taking place here. And uh, whether, again, whether that's true or not, I'm not going to say, but uh, only God knows the answer to that. 
All right, let me just read a couple of things here, and uh, as we, and then we'll bring in the pr prophetic nexus in a moment. Uh, leaders are rushing to combat accusations of anti-Semitism after a slew of anti-Israel comments from members of the party raised the stakes on a plan, and I'm just going to use the term again, I'm not trying to be political, it just happens to be political. Uh, the party that the, the stakes on a planned Democratic boycott of Israel President Itzhak Herzog's address to Congress. All right, so basically uh, uh, there's a rift. The conservative side says, yeah, bring Israel in, bring their leadership in, we're all good with that. The, uh, the leftist groups, better known uh, uh, in politics, mainly as the Democratic folks, are saying, no, we don't want anything to do with Israel. Why don't they want anything to do with Israel? Well, because a couple of the key players happen to embrace a particular faith, which is not Christianity, and it happens to be significantly opposed to Jewish people and Israel. Any idea what that particular group might have their faith in? Islam, of course. Okay? So uh, when you look at the quote-unquote the squad and others that endorse that type of rhetoric, uh, they are very anti-Israel. Well, why, why is that? Because, and again, and, and <laughs> it depends on which group of Islamic leaders you're talking to, whether they're, uh, if you will, from the more accelerated side of violence or not, but the, uh, the accelerated side or uh, those that practice jihad, which of course is very violent Islamic beliefs, what do they want to see happen to the Jewish people? Well, you got to wipe them out. Uh, I've read the Quran. Seriously, I've read it. I'm not lying about that. Many people say they've read it. That means they've read one sentence. I've gone through the whole thing. I've actually... Uh, I wasted a bunch of, well, I shouldn't say that. I went through uh, it when I was uh, doing my walks for a period of time till I got through the whole thing on audio as well so I could hear it and digest what's being said. Uh, folks, uh, uh, there is no place for the Jewish people or Christians in the Quran. Uh, wipe them out, get rid of them, infidels, uh, strike them. Uh, they're, they're a scourge to Islam. So I'm sure that uh, they, I mean, it's their, it's their book. They're not going to disagree with what I just said because that's exactly what it says. So when you have these individuals that are part of uh, Congress and they are violently opposed on their faith against Jews and Christians, obviously they're not going to be pro-Israel. It's just not going to work. All right, so let's, uh, I'm going to go, I was thinking like you're seeing this, which you're not. All right, at least four members, here it is, and I'm just quoting what this article states, and if you want to get mad at somebody, it's the Washington Free Beacon, Alana Goodman. I agree with her, by the way, but uh, get mad at her, not me. I get enough people mad at me. At least four members of the Democratic Party's progressive squad announced that they would boycott Herzog's address to Congress this Wednesday. The group includes, and I'm not going to read the names, uh, who drew widespread scrutiny over the weekend for criticizing Israel, which uh, were slammed as a racist state. You say, well, why aren't you going to name the names of the people that are uh, anti-Israel? Number one, I don't give those that are against God's principles a platform. Why, why would I want to even let their names go out? I won't. Uh, so I, I, unless there's a good reason for it, 
you know who the squad is. I, I totally am opposed to their non-biblical views. So let's see. Let's read a little bit more. Herzog, of course, Israel's president, visit comes days after President Joe Biden had denounced Israel's governing coalition as extremist. All right, so here's a little piece you may or may not know. I think we touched on it maybe a month ago. There's been a huge division in Israel right now among even the Jewish people. You're like, well, what's the big problem? Uh, the government, which is very, very conservative right now, in order for President Netanyahu, or uh, I'm sorry, Prime Minister Netanyahu to get his seat, he had to bring in a bunch of Orthodox Jewish individuals that are very, 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 very against Islam, like Palestine, they're against the Palestinians, very, very strong on Orthodox Jewish beliefs. Well, that is, it's the most conservative group that's, uh, at least in present history, uh, that's existed in what's known as the Knesset. The Knesset would be likened to our Congress, same concept. They got a big building in Israel. It's it's not nowhere near as fancy as the White House, but that's where they meet in the Knesset. And uh, uh, the flavor right now is extremely conservative, which is one of the things that our current president really doesn't like. All right. So what happened is this this very conservative Jewish government right now in the Knesset is uh, actually came up. They're trying to push this concept that basically no one can go against the Jewish groups, what they say, and the Supreme Court basically is thrown out. That's what they were pushing for. No Supreme Court, when we make a decision in the Knesset, we have the majority rule, what we say is law, no questions asked, nobody can uh, go against us, including, if you will, what they would call their Supreme Court. Well, the Jewish people being, and by the way, this is interesting, when you think about the Jewish people, conservative Jewish, oops, that was a mistake. When you think about the Jewish people in Israel, and even right here in America, do they tend to be conservative or liberal? Liberal, liberal okay? And it's like on its face you would say, well, why would that be? Well, it's the way it is. Most of the Jewish folks are very liberal. I have a couple of friends from the Orthodox Hasidic community in uh, Sherman Park, and uh, I actually met um, one of my best buddies who's a very Orthodox guy. I mean, he wears uh, the traditional Jewish garb everywhere he goes. Uh, you've seen him run. A uh, guy, guy named him, and I'll, I'll say it because he's a, he's, a, he's a politician. His name's A.B. Eisenbach. Love the guy. We're good friends. And uh, he's a staunch hard-down Republican conservative. And, of course, that's where I met him at a rally one time, and I'm like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and, uh, he's, I mean, he's hard-down uh, conservative, but that's, that's the exception to the rule. All right, so the bottom line, there's this rift that's taking place in Israel among the Jewish people, basically saying, listen, we want a more liberal-type government. We don't want this hard-down, thus saith the Jewish people in the Knesset, and wiping out the Supreme Court, wiping out checks and balances. This caused a lot of problems over the last several months in Israel, including riots that had taken place uh, among their own people. All right, just a little bit more. The Biden administration has created an atmosphere that is literally anti-Israel, that doesn't respect democracy. Former Democratic New York City Councilman Dov 
Hakeem told the Washington Free Beacon, when the Prime Minister is not invited to the White House. All right, now, this, this article is a couple of days old, so you're going to see something that's going to change here. Basically, he said, listen, uh, uh, Herzog, President Herzog can come, but no way am I letting Netanyahu into uh, the White I'm not meeting with that guy. Why? Because uh, Netanyahu is supportive of a very conservative Jewish group, and they're like, nah, no, no deal. So, obviously, when this particular article was written, that was the way it was. I will give you a hint that's going to change in the next article. But uh, here we here he goes. Uh, I'm going to go a couple more sentences here. Why is this important? Well, folks, it's extremely important on a couple of counts. I'm just going to go right back to the Abrahamic Covenant. I really would advise, of course I have no say in the matter, but I really would advise our government officials not to take off Israel. It's just biblically not a great idea. Uh, you ought to treat them with respect. Okay, if you don't agree with everything they're doing politically, so be it. Um, you can state that, but man, to diss them, that, that's a bit of a problem. Okay, a couple more things. Until Monday, when Biden spoke to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu by phone and made plans to meet with him in person, the two had not talked in months. And Biden's invitation to Herzog, who has been a critic of Israel, judicial reforms backed by Netanyahu, was viewed as a rebuke. It was also a move that some Jewish community leaders say has emboldened Israel bashing within a particular party. Wink, wink. All right. So what happens? President calls up uh, really in political terms. When you're dealing with the president of Israel, the president is not like positionally like the President of the United States. The Prime Minister actually has got more punch than the President in Israel. So for our President to call their President instead of the Prime Minister, basically it was a slap at uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who's just too conservative for our current President. Make sense? All right. So why does all that matter? Well, why it matters, again, don't mess with the Jewish people. It's just not a real biblically sound way to treat them. Secondly, if this turns out to be that, that America actually changes on a position of being an ally of Israel, which I really don't see happening anytime soon, uh, again, it puts us in a very bad, dangerous position. So it's a, a strictly from a prophetic nexus. One day there's going to be a horrible event where in Ezekiel 38 and 39 it talks about uh, basically Islamic nations rising up and attacking Israel. God will wipe them out at that time. Uh, we also know of the Battle of Armageddon in uh, Zechariah chapter 14, first four verses, where it says that, and you'll remember this, all nations will be gathered together against who? Israel, and God will wipe them out at that time. The interesting thing is, and we keep, and, and this is the prophetic, who knows, nobody knows, people speculate, but there's absolutely nothing in Scripture to back up that America is going to be here uh, at any time. I mean, America is not a part of Bible prophecy, just isn't. You've heard some Bible teachers and, and prophecy teachers say, well, I think maybe this is referring to America, or maybe this is referring, you don't think when it comes to Scripture that came out wrong. <laughs> 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 you, 
You need to think when we come to Scripture that what the Bible says the Bible means. You don't add to it. You don't speculate. You don't allegorize what God says God means. So the only hope, and again, we've given this little quip many a time, uh, which I got from Jimmy DeYoung, my good friend who's in heaven now. And again, he said the most commonly asked question in any Bible prophecy conference is, where is the United States of America in Bible prophecy? And uh, the funny part that, uh, if you recall the story, he says, well, uh, the uh, man stands up and says, well, I know where the USA is in Bible prophecy, J-E-R-U-S-A-L-E-M. It's right, Jerusalem. And uh, that is true. If America isn't destroyed before the battle uh, takes place of Armageddon, uh, America will show up at that battle and it's not going to turn out well because God will defend the Jewish people. All right, so we've got this little push and shove going on. Uh, but then as uh, this article kind of tipped us off, uh, President Biden has now invited Netanyahu to the United States, which is easing some tensions. So, yes, uh, our president, uh, and you got a little bit of a picture of Itzhak, Herzog uh, over on the left, and then, of course, uh, this actually is an older picture. It was hard to get the two of them looking at each other where they actually looked nice. And uh, so that's back when President Biden was actually the vice president. And uh, in the same room together, and even that, uh, it's not a really good smile, but at least they're looking at each other. All right, President Isaac Herzog of Israel and President Biden during a meeting in the Oval Office in October. Mr. Herzog is visiting Washington again this week, as uh, we already pointed out. Uh, President Biden on Monday invited Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel to a meeting in the United States for the first time since Mr. Netanyahu re-entered office in December, easing months of tensions about the direction of Israel's government. Mr. Netanyahu's office said that Mr. Biden made the invitation in a warm and long phone call on Monday evening on the eve of a visit to Washington by President Isaac Herzog, the Israeli president. Until Monday, that visit had been widely seen as a slight to Mr. Netanyahu. All right, so what do power people do? They make power plays, and this was one of them. The invitation of the Prime Minister reversed Mr. Biden's decision in March to avoid meeting Mr. Netanyahu in the near term. The White House officials said the prospect of a face-to-face -face meeting should not be interpreted as Mr. Biden's abandoning his objections to some of the Israeli, Israeli leaders' hardline position. A couple more paragraphs here. Mr. Biden recently described Mr. Netanyahu's coalition as one of the most extremist since the 1970s and voiced particular opposition to Mr. Netanyahu's decision to undermine the power of Israel's Supreme Court, expand Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank, and retroactively authorize settlements built in the territory without government approval. All right, so here's another major issue. So, and we already went through the first issue was basically the... Uh, what's being called the extremist Jewish position right now, which is extremely conservative, that, listen, what we say is the way it's going to be. Don't try and overrule us. We don't want the Supreme Court stepping in and messing up our conservative stand. That was a huge issue. Caused a whole lot of rights and a whole lot of money in, in Israel. What's the second major issue? 
don't touch my property. Huge. All right? So, uh, we're going to turn our auditorium into Israel for a moment. So, where's the Jewish settlement and where's the Palestinian settlement? All right, so, if uh, the, fr- the middle two sections here, let's assume that you are the Jewish population, you're the Jewish property in Israel. Right over there is known as the West Bank. They're connected. The only thing that separates them are big giant red signs that tells the Israelis if you drive into our neighborhood, you probably will not drive out. And I, I've told you this before, it's no joke. Uh, you accidentally... Oh, anybody hear about this? Uh, I, I'm caveating, but to make a point. Anybody hear about one of... Uh, let's see, what soldier... Oh yeah, I think it was an American soldier in North Korea. Anybody hear that one? Uh... So uh, uh, the American soldier apparently is trying to stay away from getting disciplined by the Americans. He must have done something goofy. I haven't read all of it. You may know. And uh, he decides to take a left turn and go over North Korean border. What happens when you cross into North Korean territory? Bye-bye. So he's uh, in jail somewhere. Has anybody heard if he got released yet? I didn't think so. Say what? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's still in custody. They're talking about potentially doing whatever swap or whatever they're going to do. All right, but it's terrible. I mean, you you cross the line, man. They, they you get snatched up. They, you go to jail. All right. So in Israel, this is. I mean, it's no joke. It seriously isn't. It's it's life or death. You pull this. So you've got the what's known as the West Bank. Well, what is it? Think for a second, geography, folks. First one to get it gets 22 and a half points tonight. What is the West Bank the West Bank of? Say what? Nope. Israel would be the expected answer, but it's not really Israel. The West Bank, okay, so if you're in Israel, this way is actually east. So you're looking east, and there's the property of the West Bank, which is all occupied by anti-Jewish Palestinians who have settlements there. They don't want this crossing into the West Bank. You're looking east, but that's the West Bank. It's the West Bank of the Palestinian territory. So when you're talking about the West Bank, it's actually the East Bank of Israel, the West Bank of the Palestinian territory. What this is talking about is Israelis have crossed into quote-unquote Palestinian territory and have built settlements, and that doesn't sit well with the Palestinian people. I mean, it's like, are you kidding? And uh, the government, the Jewish government, if you will, is supporting that. Well, the Palestinians are, are not the least bit happy about it, and it's causing division. By the way, and you, I think pretty much everybody here is pretty regular in coming here. When you look at the West Bank territory, when you look at all the land of what we'll call Israel and many other parts of the Middle East, who actually, according to Scripture, owns that land? 
Israel. The current land that they own is 10% of what God promised to give them in Genesis 15. So that West Bank over there, which is mainly occupied by Palestinians and is being expanded Jewish settlements into it, they are not happy. One day God will indeed, during the Millennial Kingdom, give all the Jewish people the entire land that he promised in Genesis 15. But right now, boom, boom, boom. Conflict, conflict, conflict. So, a couple more things and we'll move on. You shouldn't take away from the fact that they had a conversation today, meaning the President Biden and uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and that they will meet again, that we have less concerns over these judicial reforms or less concerns over some of the extremist activities and behavior by some members of the Netanyahu cabinet. All right, Uh, those concerns are still valid. White House officials declined to address directly what led the president to issue the invitation now in the absence of any apparent concessions from Mr. Netanyahu. But Mr. Biden, who had pointedly delayed the invitation for months, appeared to have judged that the need to restore a greater sense of normalcy to the United States' most critical alliance in the Middle East. Oh, yeah, that does make sense, doesn't does doesn't it? In other words, should you tick off your friend, one of the few that you got left in the Middle East? Should you? Of course not, right? You know, okay, they, they get along with us. They want to get along with us. <laughs> Don't slap them. Uh, so to, appear, or to get back a sense of normalcy to the United States' most critical alliance in the Middle East outweighed any benefits of continuing to keep Mr. Netanyahu at a, difference, or at a distance. All right, so what's the bottom line here? The bottom line is there's always tensions in Israel. There's been tensions between the Jewish people and the Palestinians. That goes all the way back to Genesis when uh, you've got the rifts that took place between brothers. Hasn't stopped. When will, when will, prophetically speaking, there will be no more division in Israel? When's that going to happen? Say what? The Millennial Kingdom. When Jesus Christ comes back, again, very quickly, here's an old timeline. Rapture of the church, seven-year tribulation, Jesus Christ comes down from heaven with his saints and goes to Jerusalem to set up his 1,000-year millennial kingdom. You want to read the, it's an exciting account that starts in Revelation 19, verse 11, and goes through Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. It's amazing. Jesus comes back. On a white horse, he goes to the Battle of Armageddon, wipes out all the enemies, including America, if we're there, and wipes them out, wipes out all the uh, uh, folks that are detractors of Christ, marches into Israel, builds the fourth temple. You say, wait a minute, I thought there was only two temples in Israel so far. You're absolutely correct. First temple, 960 to 586 B.C. Second temple, 515 B.C. until when? A.D. 70, when the what group tore it down? Romans. Romans. Okay, Daniel 9. And after the Romans came in, has there been a temple in Israel since A.D. 70? Where is the temple today? It's in you. Uh, You say, well, wait a minute. That's a whole lot of different temple than the Jewish temple. You're absolutely right. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19. Our body, Christian, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why hasn't God allowed the third temple to be built? Because we're still here. And I love that. Uh, and, and 
You know when that third temple, what will be the impetus for that third temple to be built? By the way, do the Jewish Orthodox Hasidic people want the third temple today? You betcha they do. But they're not going to get it until one event takes place prophesied in Daniel 9.27. An individual known as the Antichrist will come to the Jewish people, make a covenant with them, confirm a covenant or a peace treaty with the Jewish people. Uh, I forget who, but someone had said, well, hey, you know, I heard somebody say that uh, you can't prove that Daniel 9.27 is talking about the Jewish people. Well, sure I can. You go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, and the first 24 verses are Daniel talking about the Jewish people, why they're in captivity, and what God is going to do with the Jewish people. And then uh, the angel comes and reveals to Daniel what's going to happen in the Jewish timeline. So it's all about the Jewish people, uh, starting in Daniel 9, verse 1. Uh, so that explains it. So we know, without a shadow of a doubt, Antichrist is going to come, confirm that covenant with the Jewish people. What do they do? Well, would the Gentiles be building a third temple in Israel? Who's going to build the third temple? Obviously Jewish people. Daniel 9, 27, that temple's going up because... The Antichrist confirms the covenant with what people? The Jewish people. They build the third temple. Now, when some of you are going to be going to Israel in May of 2024 with us, you will see exactly where that third temple is going to be built, same place where the Dome of the Rock is. We will go to the Temple Institute where we will go in and you will tour the Temple Institute and you will see all the things that the Jewish people have made preparing the Jewish people to worship in that third temple. It's an amazing thing. I've been there multiple times. It's just, it's exciting. I'll even show you, and I, there's not a whole lot of people that know this. I just happened to gone on one tour with uh, Jimmy DeYoung Jr. and found out where the priests are preparing for the third temple. So I'll show where that is too. Um, now those watching on the internet are like, how'd you find that out? Well, come along with me and I'll tell you. Anyway, by the way, uh, if you are, and this is a little off the cuff here, but uh, right now the tour for May 2024, the last two weeks, and I know several of you are interested and have already signed up. You're on the list. You're good to go. We're very, very close to being totally packed out right now. So if you're interested, I've probably got a maximum of about 10 seats left out of 92 so it's getting close so if you're interested uh, in two weeks we're going to have an informational meeting over here right after the first service or you can see me tonight there's no money involved with this until January but I need if you're saying man I really really want to go please see me so I can get you locked in because once we get past that 92 mark we'll be going on a waning list all right enough said does all this make sense? Anybody got a question? I'll even open it up. Questions on this? There's 52 hands raised, but I'm not going to answer a single one. No. <laughs> all right. Nobody raised their hand. Good. We'll move on to the next one. Uh, okay. This is a, an old standby here. The arrival of the biblical red heifer in Israel could bring millions of visitors. So we've been talking about the red heifer for quite some time. And uh, let's see. Yeah, we even got the passage here. Hundreds of visitors flocked to Shiloh. Oh, by the way, those going on our trip, and again, I'm not trying to sell. I, I'm actually trying to, 
I, I hope I don't have to get where I have to talk people out of going, but because we've got so much interest, but which is great. No, and I never do that. I start another trip before I do that. But anyway, uh, Shiloh is a place that most tour groups do not go to. Uh, and there's reasons for that, but Shiloh happens to be the place where the tabernacle before the temple was built stayed in Shiloh multiple, uh, several hundred years. So it was a major place where the Jewish people worshiped God. The tabernacle was there. You'll see that, and you'll see exactly where the slab still is. Uh, the, and it's not made out of concrete. It's made out of a coarse stone. And you can still see uh, uh, markings where... Uh, if you will, what we'll call poles or whatever had been put in for the tabernacle. It's just, it's an amazing sight. Anyway, uh, in that same place, because it does have tremendous significance to the Jewish people, hundreds of visitors flocked to Shiloh and Samaria's. Does that kind of answer your question why a lot of the tourists don't go there? It's in uh, Samaria. Uh, Binyamin region on Thursday to welcome a biblically pure red heifer. The 22-month-old cow, which was brought to Israel from the United States, found a new home in the, at the ancient Shiloh Heritage site where the biblical tabernacle once stood. In the coming month, two more heifers will be transported to the town, and a center will open there dedicated to researching the phenomena. The heifers will be kept in a fenced-off area, and visitors will not be able to touch the animals. Why do you think they won't let anybody touch the animals? They don't want them, if you will, getting any blemishes, hurts, nicks, scratches, whatever. This cow is going to be treated like uh, the Queen of Sheba until they take, uh, take its life. That's, that's a nice way to put it. Uh, why are they going to take that red heifer's life? All right, very quickly, give you a little bit more on Jewish history here out of uh, the Old Testament, specifically the book of Numbers, chapter 19. And this is talking about what is required back in Old Testament times. Did you catch my emphasis? In Old Testament times to purify the temple and the people for sacrifices. Well, let's see. When the Antichrist confirms that peace treaty with Israel and the third Jewish temple goes up, which is ready to go as we speak, what do the Jewish people think they're going to need to make that temple pure and the people pure? They need the ashes of the red heifer. All right, very quickly. Numbers 19.1. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses. All right, so we're talking 14, about 1445 B.C., somewhere in that neighborhood. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, who? Oh, yeah, Israel, that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect and on which a yoke has never come. Wait a second. Why is that important biblically and prophetically? Who else could not have any spot or blemish or sin? The Lord Jesus Christ being the ultimate sacrifice. Same description used of the Lord, of course, a little bit different, but without sin, perfect, without blemish, without spot, just like the heifer has to be perfect. Why? Because God was using this symbolic red heifer, the symbolic cleansing, to look forward to the future when Jesus Christ himself, the unspotted, perfect, sinless Savior, would go to the cross. Verse 3, You shall give it to Eliezer the priest, 
that he may take it outside the camp, and he shall be slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Was the temple built yet? No, we're talking about the Old Testament tabernacle, the tent, the same one that ended up in Shiloh for several, several hundred years. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, sprinkle some of its blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide, its flesh, its blood, its offal shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedarwood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes, he shall bathe in water, and afterwards he shall come into the camp. The priest shall be unclean until evening, and the one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water, bathe in water, and shall be unclean until evening. Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifers, store them outside the camp in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. It is for purifying from sin, i.e., why the Jewish people are ecstatic that they believe they finally have that perfect red heifer at this point. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It shall be a statute forever. Oh, okay, so what do you think the Jewish people are thinking here? It will be a statute for how long? Forever. Forever. All right, so when the Jewish people, the Orthodox Jewish people, now remember, these are not Christians. They are still following Orthodox Jewish practices. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They are 100% locked into the Torah. Okay, for this is only worth about five points. How many books of the Bible are part of the Torah? And those are found where? First five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books of the Torah. I'll give you eight points for this one. There's another word that describes those same five books which starts with a P. Pentateuch. Wow, a lot of eight-point getters right there. All right. Make sure you redeem those points. You say, well, where do we do that? I've never found where they do it yet, but just keep collecting them. Someday we'll find it. All right. Uh, <laughs> it shall be a statute forever to the children of Israel and to the stranger who dwells among them. All right. So in my mind, I'm a Jewish Orthodox Christian, or not strike the Christian. I'm a Jewish Orthodox practicing Jew, Hasidic Jew. I'm reading the Torah. And this says, what? I got to do this. And if I was an Orthodox Jewish believer, I'd say, yeah, we got to do this. Well, God says, no, the Old Testament law is done. It's passed away. It's been fulfilled in Christ. Read the entire. Remember uh, three weeks ago, I asked everybody in the church to read the book of Galatians. You know, I've started with the book of Galatians because we still have so many folks that have come in from various places, and they're, they're still thinking they gotta, they got to follow the law. And, and it's like, listen, folks, we live in liberty. We don't follow the law anymore. I mean, the Old Testament law with its do's and don'ts is gone. The only thing that actually, if you want, that pulls through the Old Testament are God's moral laws. In other words, don't kill people. Um, I mean, you look at nine of the Ten Commandments, and they've been reiterated in the New Testament. But do we follow the ceremonial law? Uh-uh. Do we follow the Old Testament dietary law? Uh-uh. 
I, I mean, there's ton. There's out of that. Um, I forgot the number. Out of the 700 plus commandments, uh, there's the moral concepts have passed into New Testament uh, uh, principles, if you will. But the rest of it's all gone. It's done. It's washed away. When when Jesus Christ came, you don't follow that anymore. Uh, you, you know, if I. Some of you would know this. Uh, uh, many of you have never been into what we'll just call the old-fashioned independent fundamental Baptist church. I grew up in that uh, after I got right with the Lord as a teenager. If I would have walked into church dressed like this, I would have been ushered out just like this. I'm dead serious. Uh, white, I, I was preaching in a, a church down south oh, about two years ago. I don't wear a white shirt. I mean, I rarely do. I mean, I spill all over it. It, may, it looks terrible. It looks like tie-dye after I have a meal. So it's like, I don't wear white shirts. Uh, and I was wearing a, a kind of a white with a blue stripe on it, which I got lots of those. The pastor afterwards, we're driving, I forget, we're, we're driving to dinner or something, and he says, you know, Brother Rich, he says, I, I, I really made an exception to the rule today. And I'm like, well, what you talking about? And he's like, I never let anybody preach in my pulpit without a white shirt on. I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm like, okay, uh, well, you keep wearing your white shirt, but I'm not going to wear one. If, if you invite me back, you know, if I sin so bad by wearing a white shirt with blue polka dots or whatever I had on, if, uh, if that's anti-God, then don't invite me back. He invited me back and uh, didn't make that, that requirement. But it, that's how silly things got back back in the day. You know, it's, it's you got to look like this, you got to dress like this, blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry, I don't mean to get upset. But anyway, uh, that's old-fashioned legalism. Uh, do I believe you should look nice? Sure. And you say, well, Pastor, this is I don't like checked shirts. Well, I'm sorry, you know, I don't like whatever. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but it's like it's Wednesday night. It's hot out. I'm wearing short sleeve shirts. and like everybody else in here. <laughs> so we don't get hung up on, on old-fashioned legalism. And uh, I'm so happy. Listen, folks, I, I love this church. I really do. I do. And you say, well, why do you love it? Because of the people. I mean, what is the church? It's people. Uh, it's not rules and regulations. Do, again, do I think we should look presentable? Of course. Do I think we should dress modestly? Of course. Do I think that involves a whole lot of different styles and whatever? Yeah, it does. So I don't like getting hung up on legalism and all God's people said. Amen. And anybody that didn't say amen, I got your number. No. <laughs> all good. All right, how about we get in the book of Acts? What do you say? Let's go to Acts chapter 20. We got some interesting things tonight. And uh, three things. We'll see how much time. we got about a half an hour or so. And uh, we're going to talk, oh, by the, by the way, before I get into this, you know what this coming Sunday is? Yes. Pensacola. Pensacola is going to be right here at Union Grove Baptist Church. So all the folks watching on the Internet, everybody in here, I mean, we're, uh, we got a lot of folks that are going to be on vacation. So it's a good time. Uh, we, can, we can fill it up with visitors. So uh, this is a great group. Now, uh, just to let you know, Pensacola Christian College definitely goes more on the conservative music, but the voices are great, the music is great, and even if uh, that genre of music isn't particularly what you care for, I think you'll like this. Um, it, it's good, and you'll hear very good music. It's, uh, the, and again, seven great voices will be here. The musicians will be fantastic. 
So they'll put on about a half an hour concert at uh, the beginning of the 9 a.m. service. Uh, then, uh, sorry, I'm going to preach. I'm going to waste. Uh, you're like, oh, man, you're not going to go that long, are you, if they, if they sing too long? I'll try not to, okay, really well. And uh, Sunday school time, they'll do a couple of numbers. Then uh, Josh will be speaking. And then Sunday night, half an hour concert uh, by Pensacola. And then uh, a short message. Promise. All right. And, uh, but it'll be great. So come on out. Uh, take advantage of it. Uh, I know a lot of folks don't normally come Sunday night. We have a huge crowd Sunday morning, Sunday night. Eh, it's uh, about a sixth of what we get Sunday morning. So uh, maybe think about coming out. It'll be fun. It'll be good. It'll be encouraging and uh, uplifting. All right. That's my commercial. Folks on the Internet, everyone's invited. Unigirl Baptist Church, 417 15th Avenue, Union Grove, Wisconsin, the Union Grove. All right, Acts chapter twenty. We're going to uh, how many? How many were not here last week? All right, so several. So I'm going to do is a very quick review of what took place last week, and then we're going to pop into the new material. So uh, if you remember, and, and here's what we're going to look at the conclusion. There's a big uproar that takes place in the place of Ephesus. And then uh, we'll, we'll be looking uh, as Paul continues into his third missionary journey. Very quick, just look at some of the sites. And then we're going to see Eutychus, who actually gets raised from the dead. One of my favorite stories in Acts. All right, so Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, get your bearings now. We're, we're in Ephesus, which is was called Asia Minor, which is modern-day what? Turkey. Turkey, all right? Ephesus is where Paul is. Now, if you look down in the right-hand lower section, that's where Jerusalem. So Israel down there in the right. Everything literally that's taking place in the first, second, and third missionary journeys, you're basically seeing it on the map right now. Uh, that was uh, uh, the main areas where Paul went. It covers quite a bit of land. Uh, when you see the word Achaia, what country would that be in today? Greece, all right? So we have Israel, and we're as far over as Greece, and uh, Macedonia, of course, up to the north. So again, by the way, all these territories today, who, what uh, religious group basically runs them? What group? You're right, say it a little bit louder. Yeah, they're all Muslim. Uh, Islamic, which is why when the Bible says in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that when... Uh, these nations are going to come down and surround Jerusalem. It's no joke. They're going to come down and surround Jerusalem, but God's going to wipe them out at that time. Ezekiel 38 and 39. All right, so last week we showed you a couple of pictures, and we'll show them again for those that weren't here. Absolutely beautiful temple that was built for their idols, specifically the goddess who? Diana. All right, Diana literally, literally. According to mythology, according to the Ephesians, Diana comes down out of heaven and they worship. Did they ever see Diana? No. So how did, how did, how did they get pictures of Diana? Well, of course, the artist made them up and uh, they sold statues of Diana. Every household, just like we would get a Bible, every house has a, a Bible, which we don't use as an idol, but it's certainly that's where we get God's word. Uh, the idols were everywhere. 
The Ephesians, the artisans, the silversmiths were making a fortune off of selling Diana dolls, literally, a goddess. So they build her this big, beautiful building uh, uh, where the worship took place. All right, then I took you down the streets of Ephesus. I'm actually standing. I, I, I mean, this ruin is huge. Um, if you ever get a chance, the seven churches of Asia, that's a tour that I've been on. Um, maybe I'll organize one like that in the future. The only problem I have with going into some of these countries is I got detained once, and I really don't want to get detained again. So anyway, that's a long, well, it's actually a fairly short story, but I don't like it at all. Um, anyway, uh, this is all Islamic territory, so the bottom line is I'm a little skeptical at times. But anyway, I'm standing at the beginning of Ephesus. This is a huge, giant uh, a path that goes through tons and tons of buildings. Uh, the, the ancient ruins are still there. I mean, it really is quite a magnificent ruin, if you like archaeology. Uh, we showed you this picture, which is actually the ruins that, that fancy building in the back, that's the library. Of course, I had to go to the library. I was very disappointed when there were no books there. Um, but anyway, uh, a beautiful area. This is still before a lot of the cleanup and digging had been done. It's in much better shape now. Uh, but anyway, Ephesus, great place to visit. Well, now we come to the next one, which is exactly where this Acts is taking place in uh, Acts chapter 19. So Paul comes in preaching Jesus. That didn't go over very well with, the, uh, with uh, uh, the people of Ephesus. The artisans, the silversmiths, get all cranked up on Paul and his buddies because they're preaching Jesus. Now, folks, what happens to an individual when you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? What do you do with your idols? You throw them away. You don't need them anymore. You realize that it's false worship. And that's exactly what was happening uh, Paul was having a tremendous influence along with his friends, uh, Christian friends. A lot of folks were coming to Christ, and the silversmiths were really upset because they were losing business. So we have thousands and thousands of people gather in this auditorium, and they start screaming and yelling, worship the goddess Diana. And they're screaming and yelling so that uh, nobody can be heard over them. And, of course, uh, uh, it was just a horrible uproar. All right? So this literally is where that was taking place back in the day. All right, so on the left is what the goddess Diana looked like for those that weren't here last week. Uh, it's, and you're like, well, what are all those? And, and I try to be, I've never, I'm never good about trying to say things that are more on an intimate basis. It's very hard to say those things with, uh, without being non-politically correct or something, but I just have to spell it out. The reason she's, I'll give you this much, she was known as one of the fertility gods, and all of those round things are actually considered breasts on the goddess. So a multi-breasted statue, this was what being made, it was, con I mean, it was hugely reproduced by these artisans, sold to every family possible, and that's what they worshipped. Now folks, honestly, think about this. If you honestly believed and were taught that you worship this, this goddess, if you're barren, ladies, and you worship this goddess, you will have children. Would you worship that goddess? Well, back in that culture, yeah, you'd do it. You're like, I'd do anything. 
The guys that, that wanted children couldn't have them, or they just wanted to be blessed by Diana. If you honestly thought that that statue was truly a god, which, I mean, the whole city did for the most part, I mean, it was a big deal. In our culture, that seems ludicrous, but folks, these folks bought it hook, line, and sinker. Paul comes in, preaches the gospel, and the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, all of you know it, if any man or woman be in Christ, they are a what? A new creature, a new creation, old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new, and that's exactly what was taking place. All right, quick review then. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater, which I showed you with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. They're like, listen, Paul, you want to die? Sure, go in there and be a hero, but they're going to tear you to shreds. Stay out of there. Then some of the officials of Asia, in other words, the local Ephesians, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. We spent a lot of time on that last week. They didn't even know why they're there. They're screaming, yelling, chanting about Diana, and it was just monkey see, monkey do, sheeple following sheeple, and uh, causing a big ruckus, and they didn't even know why. And uh, we kind of made that common to what happens in many things in America today and other countries where all of a sudden a bunch of people gather screaming, yelling, chanting, and a bunch of other folks show up. And it's like, did you ever hear the concept that success breeds success? If you've got a big crowd, what happens? It gets bigger. Why? Because people, why, why are the people here? Uh, just a little teeny example of that. Uh, how many were you at Justin's 4th of July picnic, right? Church picnic. Jody, I know you were there. <laughs> and uh, what happened? Very interesting. I mean, it was a big, it was a big group. And the planes are flying overhead. What happened? We had multiple people that came in because they saw the crowd. Uh, a couple of them actually visited the church the, that Sunday. And uh, why? They saw the crowd. They're like, well, what's going on here? And, uh, of course, uh, they were told what was going on. It was all good, and, and it was wonderful. But uh, that was a good thing. Here, most of the time, when people are joining a big crowd, it could, could go the other way and be something that isn't good. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one accord, cried out for two hours, great as Diana of the Ephesians. Last time I heard two hours of yelling and screaming was at a baseball game. Outside of that, you don't hear it much. But, uh, I mean, these folks, this was, I mean, they just got into it. All right, finally then, and when the city clerk, again, the city clerk in Ephesus was a big deal. It wasn't just uh, uh, when we think of a clerk, sometimes we don't put them at this level, but positionally the city clerk was high position in that day. The city clerk had quieted the crowd. He said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Is Zeus real? Oh, another, idolatry, another idol. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. And again, I, I actually like this guy. He made some sense here, trying to calm the people down. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blaspheming blasphemies of your goddess. What we pointed out last week was these were, what, what did Paul do? 
He didn't come into the pagan area and say, listen, you bunch of idolaters, you goddess worshipers, what's wrong with you? Why don't you get your hearts right with the real God and, and just sit there and slam what they were doing? That's not Paul's methodology. Paul's methodology, which of course is biblical methodology, he came in and did what? He preached Jesus. A lot of, a lot of times folks will, it's like, okay, you ought to really hammer this. I've had uh, people call me up and they want me to do an interview for whatever it might be, something usually political that has a Christian nexus, and they're like, I want you to really slam this group. I'm like, uh, you got the wrong guy to do the interview. I'm not going to sit here and slam another group. I'll preach Jesus. I'll talk about what's right. But no, I'm not going to get on here and just slam somebody else because you don't like them. I, I don't believe that's God's methodology. Now, if somebody's teaching biblical error, uh, uh, should at least we kindly, and speaking the truth in love, uh, uh, point those things out, of course. But uh, simply to get on the air and scream and rant about something, uh, I don't believe that's God's methodology, and neither was it Paul's methodology, and I, I think he's probably a good guy to pattern yourself after. So he said, listen, they, they didn't come in here and rob our temples. They didn't come here and blaspheme your goddess. What did they do? They came in and preached what? They preached Jesus. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro, pro councils. Let them bring charges against one another. It shall be determined in a lawful assembly, for we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There, there be no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And I'm like, good job. And I mean it, good job. Settle the people down, send them home, get some order back in the city. Boy, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had police chiefs and sheriffs and, and governments that did the same thing today? Did I say that? Oh, you betcha I did. Anyway, all right, so that ended up last week. Ready for the new stuff? Okay, there's two people still awake, so we'll, we'll continue now. All right, conclusion of the uproar against Paul in Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, verse 1. And we're not going to get through 38 verses tonight. Uh, we'll touch on two issues, and then we'll be done. After the uproar had ceased, where was the uproar? Where was the uproar, folks? In what, what place? In the auditorium, in what place? Starts with an E. There we go. All right. So you say, well, why are you, why are you asking us questions? Do you know what the greatest way to remember something is? It's the rule of repetition. So you're like, well, why do you make us talk in church? Well, because I don't like being the only voice. So I like to hear you. Uh, uh, but repetition, you, you go through this and, the, the, okay, here's, here's a question, and there isn't actually a valid answer to this. How many times do you need to say something before the average person will remember it? What's your guess? Okay, what I hear? Seven? Five? A thousand? <laughs> really slow learner. Ten? All right, we're, we're right there. It's actually, statistics show nine is the actual amount of times you need to say something to get it. Um, anyway. It's a lot. It, 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 our minds, I mean, okay, here, here's another little thing. So, and I know you folks, you, our church is great at it. So you come up to somebody, they're, they're a brand new visitor. 
So you go up to them and say, hey, how you doing? And uh, my name's so-and-so, what's your name? And they say, it takes you about how long to forget their name? Ten seconds. Yeah, if, uh, if you make it that long. And you're, you're looking right at them, and they just said their name. And uh, you want to say, okay, well, it's, it's been great meeting you. <coughs> and, and it's gone. You know the best way I found it of how to remember names for me? Get them, I, got, I, got, I got to get them out. I got to get them. And that was from Phil. And, and he's absolutely right. Because you sit down and there's only four to eight to ten people and you sit there and you start connecting with them and you start understanding a little bit about who they are and all of a sudden the names start to stick. Now that's what works for me. So if you want me to remember your name instead of me asking you out, you ask me out. I got zero response. Thank you so much. And... Uh, Okay, I'll change the response level right now. You invite me out, and I'll pay for it. That's a better response, a little better. And I mean that. Uh, a lot of folks we, we haven't got to, I mean, here's the problem. We just keep growing, and I got four brand-new couples right now that I promised to take out that I haven't gotten out yet. Brand-new couples, and then more folks walk in the door every week. So I just keep, the list keeps getting like this. So if you want to expedite it, you call me and say, Pastor, would you take us out on? I will do it. I promise I'll do it. And I will pay for it. And I promise that too. Is that fair? That's fair. All right. So anyway, I don't know where that came from. But the uproar sees Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia, which is in that upper quadrant above Greece. Oh, speaking of... Uh, he's going up, he's leaving Ephesus, and he wants to get up to Macedonia. All right, verse 2. Now, when he, Paul, had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece, which is south, and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So he goes back up north. And Sopater of Berea accompanying him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. I'm not going to go into all those names. It's just the third missionary journey is proceeding. We know where Greece is. We know where Macedonia is. And uh, Paul basically went back and forth, preaching to the churches, encouraging the saints. And then we come to verse 5. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, we are going to talk a little bit about the days of unleavened bread. So on our map again, we're talking about Troas, we're talking about Philippi, all, and Macedonia. Is that a city or a region? Region. All right. Uh, Ephesus, of course, is a city. Troas is a city. Jerusalem is a city. Uh, and they went in there and, of course, were doing missionary work. All right. So let's see how many people know this one. The days of unleavened bread refers to what particular feast? I heard it over here. 
Passover, you all said that too over here, right? Passover? I thought I heard it. We all agree. We all agree. Okay. Well, uh, Jody's absolutely right. We're referring to the Passover. Let's go to a uh, very quick, a uh, little more Old Testament history. So now to the Jewish people, this is, was extremely important. Even though Paul was preaching Christ, was Paul a Jew? He did have Jewish blood. Was he still dealing with Jewish people? Was he still following, if you will, the Jewish practices, going to the feasts? And, yeah, he did. Uh, absolutely he did because he was working with Jews as well as Gentiles. Uh, but just a little background here. What were the days of unleavened bread? You actually find it in two major passages in Scripture, Exodus chapter 12 and Leviticus chapter 23. So very quickly, let's just review that, and then we'll try to get to Eutychus. So the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. This, of course, is way back. Again, this is during uh, the writing of the Torah, the Pentateuch. Uh, when the law was being given to Moses. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, very specific, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Here we are, just like the red heifer, just like Jesus. The lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day. In other words, they were watching the lamb to make sure it what? That it was pure, that it was without spot, without blemish. So that lamb is being watched. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, verse 6. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. What are we preparing for right now? Why are they going through this? Because what is God going to do? He's talking about the first Passover when the Jewish people were still stuck in what country? Egypt. And God said, listen, here's the Passover. You do what I tell you. You eat the food exactly the way I tell you. You put that blood on, uh, 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 on the doorpost and on the lintel. And when I come through, if I see the blood, I will pass over you. If God did not pass over a house, what happened? The firstborn was killed, died, and horrible. And he's a little more in the Passover. Don't eat it raw, nor boil it all with water, but roast it in fire, its head with its legs and entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Why? Because as soon as the Passover was done, the Jewish people were to get up and get going, get out of town, head to the promised land. That's exactly what was happening. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, here it is, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Israel. Now here's the issue then with why the people today, the Jewish people, still follow it. Verse 14, 
Uh, so this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. You go into any Jewish Orthodox committee or community, do they practice the Passover today? Well, you bet you they do. It's, it's dead serious, uh, and they still follow it to the day. I don't need to read the rest. Uh, pretty much we know that. All right, let me go to one other passage, Leviticus 23. Sorry for the flip there. Here's the other main passage. It's much shorter talking about. Now, Leviticus 23 is simply a, it goes through all the seven feasts in Leviticus 23, and it reiterates what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, and it identifies it. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month, same as back in where? Exodus 12. At twilight is the Lord's what? Passover. Okay? And it's to be kept. Every single year, you don't skip the Passover. You must uh, fulfill the Passover. By the way, the Jewish people had three mandatory, the Jewish males, that is, had three mandatory feasts every single year where they were mandated to come to Jerusalem. Those three feasts were Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of Tabernacles, or Feast of Booze, or Sukkah, all the same. All right, we'll skip that. Uh, oh, all right, so where are we at? Okay, I'm going to take another five minutes. So let's, let's go here, next, next section. So we see uh, on the first day of the week, uh, God's people met together, all right? So why did they do that? Uh, Acts 20, verse 7 now, on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them. You folks realize how lucky you are? You know, I start at uh, eh, about 9.30, and I'm done by 10.15, 10.20, on a long day. And you, we, we still have plenty of time to go to Sunday school and have lunch, and it's not even noon yet. Paul starts preaching. He got done at midnight. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He didn't get done at midnight. He continued his message until midnight. I don't ever want to hear another complaint. <laughs> <laughs> there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up what? Dead. Now, you all know the story, and we've actually gone through it multiple times because it's one of my favorite. But, I mean, just horrible tragedy. Poor guy sitting in the window, and uh, bam, he, he loses it, falls over. Fortunately, when most people fall asleep here, the worst they do is hit their head on a pew, and usually they're fine. But uh, uh, anyway, you see, Pastor, why do, you, why do you use a lot of dynamics, or at least not all the time, but a lot of dynamics when you speak? Because I'm trying to help you stay awake. I know it's tough. Some people work third shift, or they've been up, they've been working, it's hard, and uh, we try and help folks stay awake. By the way, those watching on the Internet know I don't yell, scream, and holler, but I do. Ah, we do get excited a little bit. All right, uh, so let's talk about what is the first day of the week, and I think we'll have to do the rest of Eutychus later. Uh, but anyway, this is important. Why do we meet on, on Sunday instead of on the Sabbath? 
a lot of, you know, of course it's the resurrection. There's a lot of people that still think that Sunday is the Sabbath. Sunday is not the Sabbath, folks. The Sabbath starts on Friday night at sundown and goes to sundown on Saturday. We do have, I should say we, there are churches that are called Seventh-day Adventist churches. They literally meet on the Sabbath, sometime between Friday night and Saturday night, because they're still steeped in following Old Testament law. The law again, and again, that's why I ask people to read Galatians. It's crystal clear that we no longer are under the law, specifically speaking. We don't follow the Sabbath. If we followed the Sabbath, we'd meet on Friday night to Saturday night. By the way, though, nine of the other Ten Commandments, excluding the Sabbath, are all reiterated under Pauline preaching that we're to follow them. But the Sabbath is not reiterated. The first day of the week. So why do we do it? Matthew 28, 1. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. So it's after the Sabbath. They couldn't go to the tomb during the Sabbath, so they get up, they go to the tomb at the end of Saturday night. They go on the first day of the week at dawn, and they what do they do? They come to the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. So this is, I mean, it's taking place. Right before they get there, this thing is taking place. On the first day of the week, Sunday, his countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is what? He is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he, Jesus, is risen from the dead, and indeed it is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. By the way, there in Judea, the next major region is Samaria. The next major region of Israel is Galilee. So they're talking about a 90-mile walk to get up to where Jesus was going to be. But that's beside the point. Why do we meet on the first day of the week? Well, again, Pauline writing, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, now concerning the collection for the saints. In other words, when you take an offering to help people. As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. When are you to do that? On the Sabbath? Nope. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Well, why did they meet? It was the day when the disciples met together. It was when the God's people met together. It was a time when they would come and uh, basically, like we do for deacons offering, you collect money and uh, distribute it to those in need. All right, so I'm just going to finish this very quickly. We'll maybe pop a little more into, oh, uh, I do want to share this. Bottom line, Paul goes down and raises Eutychus from the dead, but I'll let uh, Josh will probably be here next week. So um, Valerie got a call yesterday, which no one wants to receive, and uh, she came in, and of course she was very upset, and I'm like, what happened? And Valerie doesn't get highly emotional, and she began to cry. And I'm like, what happened? And uh, she had just gotten a call from her Aunt Rita in Montana, and uh, her brother passed away yesterday, had a, had a massive heart attack and, and passed on. He's 60 years old. Uh, most of you know about uh, literally a month ago today, uh, Valerie and I left on Monday, went out to Montana for a family reunion. We were back by 
Friday night, so it was very, very quick. So we had flown out there, and uh, Donnie, who just a wonderful, wonderful guy, good guy, I really loved him, and got to spend some time with him a month ago. Uh, he he was just having the time of his life. He was enjoying life. He, uh, him and his, he was uh, cooking at one of the local schools in a little place called Conran, Montana. A couple hundred folks, and his grandkids would come and he'd cook for uh, the school. And he was going to retire fully in about a year. Him and his wife were just setting up what they were going to do, and boom, uh, tragedy happens, and God took him home. Uh, I believe he was saved, and uh, so I rejoice in that, but it's hard. So uh, uh, either Monday or Tuesday, we'll be hopping on a plane, going all the way back to uh, Great Falls, Montana for the funeral uh, so she can see uh, her brother and family uh, one last time. When we met a month ago, we said this, Eutychus, uh, as it's said here, he died. The good news for Eutychus was that Paul walked in, had the gift of healing, had the apostolic healing power, if you will, to raise Eutychus from the dead. Eutychus did rise from the dead and uh, went on with his life until the Lord eventually took him for the last time. You see, two weeks ago, we talked about Joshua LaFord, or uh, was it Joshua? I, mean, I don't want to say his name wrong. Is, is Josh right? Those of you that know Cheryl, it's Josh, right? Josh LaForge, who a uh, police officer here, was out walking with his wife, 41 years old, drops over dead of a heart attack. You just don't know. My buddy, my brother-in-law, Donnie Zimbelman, 60-some years old, ready for 20 more years with his wife, Boom. Goes outside, doesn't feel well, comes inside, basically is all but passed out. They call 911, get him to the hospital and start working on him and lost him. Folks, you don't know if you have tomorrow. You just don't. The most important thing we did when we were in Montana four weeks ago was to present the gospel to some that we knew hadn't trusted Christ. I told you the story able to lead one of my good buddies who's a relative to Christ. Now it's worth it all. That's actually why I went, and I told you that, and I meant it. Folks, there's nothing more important than the gospel. First thing Valerie said after she was composed is, when we were there, did we share the gospel with enough people? Does all my family know for sure that if they die, they go to heaven. And I don't think we can answer to the affirmative on that. I can't talk to Donnie anymore. I can't talk to Josh LaForge. Time has passed. You see, when we go to the funeral this coming week, and we t- see the people and think about the life of Donnie. There's only one thing that matters to a Christian after someone passes away. Where are they going? Are they going to be with Jesus? Well, I trust Donnie will be with Jesus, his brother, another brother of Valerie's, Pastor Jeff Zimbelman, good guy, wonderful guy, preacher, had talked to Donnie multiple times. I believe Donnie was a saved guy. And I can take comfort in that. Well, folks, here's the last thought. 
every single one of us knows people, whether they're relatives, friends, whomever, acquaintances, and all of a sudden you're going to get that phone call or you're going to see it somewhere that that person who you loved and care about all of a sudden has gone. The first thing you're going to think as a believer in Christ is that person with the Lord Jesus. And you know what the second thing is, which I don't even want to say, you're going to ask yourself, did I do what I could to tell that person the gospel? Folks, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on, every, on any single one of us, but boy, I'll tell you what, I hate going to a funeral. I hate it with all my heart. If I've gone there and I know I haven't done my part to at least try to tell that person the gospel. So let that be a little bit of a, I mean it as an encouragement, What's the encouragement? Folks, don't be shy about telling the greatest news ever given to mankind that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. That's what all this, what all this is all about. Father, thank you for your love for us. Lord, I pray that you'd comfort the LaForge family as the recent loss of their husband and their father and many friends and relatives that are sincerely grieving right now over the loss of such a young man. Father, bless those dear folks. Father, I pray for the Zimbelman family and Valerie and others that are affected by losing our dear friend and loved one, Donnie. Lord, I pray you comfort them. I pray as the funeral takes place and as the family gets together that those that know Christ will lovingly and tenderly one last time, maybe it'll be their last time, Share the gospel with those they may never see again. Father, help every single person in this room, those watching on the Internet that know Jesus as their personal Savior. Help us to be willing to share the wonderful gospel that we're all sinners, that because we've sinned, if we got what we deserve, not a single one of us will go to heaven. But the great news that your Son, Jesus Christ, came down from heaven, died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and three days later rose from the dead. And Father, thank you so much that the free gift of salvation is here for every single person. For by grace, God's free unmerited gift, are you saved? Saved from sin, saved from the penalty of sin. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. Maybe tonight you're watching, you're here, and you're like, wow, maybe today will be my last breath. Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Have you accepted his free gift of eternal life? Do it right now. Don't put it off. You don't know if you have tomorrow. Accept that free gift tonight. For those of us that already know Jesus, we've put our faith and trust in him. Boy, if this isn't a fresh reminder to me, and a fresh reminder to all of us, life is short. Take every opportunity to share Jesus with those you can. Father, bless us now. Thank you for this evening. We pray that you'd uh, give safety to uh, folks as they travel home. We look forward to a, a blessing from the group from Pensacola. Watch over them as they travel up from Kansas this weekend. Uh, we just commit all this to you, and uh, we trust that we'll walk with God and be a blessing to others this week. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Thanks so much for being here. Safe travels. We'll see you Sunday if you're here.